and welcome to the Trainer Tools podcast. I'm John Tomlinson and I'm here with Kushal Bowes. Hi, Kushal. How are you? Good. How are you, John? Uh, thanks for inviting me and uh, nice to see you. You want to talk about deep learning and I love that phrase when you came up with it when we were talking before, this idea of creating deep learning experiences. And I have this bee in my bonnet about this because a lot of what I think people teach on a lot of corporate training, people could just get from YouTube or Google and it's fairly shallow stuff. A lot of L&D is fairly shallow. I, I always am talking to my team and the people I work with, how can we make this deeper? How can we make this more insightful, a bigger learning experience for people? So as soon as you said you wanted to talk about deep learning, I was excited about it. Thank you. Yeah. So where, where did this... I mean, I will, well, actually, let's talk through your story first because your story is not the usual. <laughs> I don't know how you managed to make this look like a single line when you did your LinkedIn profile, but... Um, <laughs> Go on, tell, tell us about your story, because it really isn't that kind of standard career. I'll try to be as brief as possible uh, about myself, and we want to talk more about what interests your audience. And what I am has a lot to do with what I do. And I am a product of a, of a family uh, where my father was an engineer, and uh, he was a managing director of a large pharmaceutical company, and uh, we traveled uh, quite a bit in and around India. My childhood was never in one place, uh, and really uh, that dropped interests in me right away from the childhood about different... As you know, India is more like Europe. It's different countries put together in one boundary uh, rather than one country. It's a very, uh, very different uh, from north to south to east to west. and so. My first experiences in my childhood was that of a different sound, different music, different stories, different food, different traditions in different parts of India uh, with my dad. Uh, but although I was from Calcutta, India, which is the eastern part of India, and which is the intellectual capital of India, if you will. So I grew up in a very intellectual environment because my mother was a classical vocalist and my, my dad was uh, an engineer. So I grew up with the right side and the left side of the brain, if you will. And I went to a school which was completely very British uh, influenced in English medium. And I, uh, I, I learned English uh, in the proper way, even more than most American kids know. I wrote Byron, Shelley, Keats, Milton, Wordsworth, uh, Tennyson when I was in school. And I, uh, it was populated by teachers who were great novelists get satirist, the dramatist, uh, filmmakers. So I was influenced while I was a student of science and engineering. I was, I was deeply influenced by my mother and the people that taught me uh, in, in, in school. So I grew up with two sides of the brain fully nourished. And I came to America after my engineering degree to, start, to get my master's degree. I was immediately hired by Westinghouse in Chicago. And they sent me to nuclear engineering school in Philadelphia, and I became a nuclear engineer. For the next 10 years, I was building nuclear power plants all over the United States, specifically in the San Francisco Bay Area uh, in, the, in California. But then after 10 years of doing that, uh, John, I, I felt an urge within me. All those bugs uh, that were planted early in my life started surfacing and uh, wanted to do something else. And I was getting tired of the, of the nuclear scene. So I switched, I moved from California to New York and enrolled myself in a master's degree in, in film and theater in the Department of English at, at the State University of New York. And I got my master's degree in film I was, uh, and I was the topper in the class because every, every kid in the class 
uh, was there for a degree and I was there for an experience. Uh, so uh, I, I became a filmmaker and I loved it so much. I was invited by a then Prime Minister of India, Rajiv Gandhi, to come to India to do some films for, uh, for uh, Indian television. Uh, and that's what I did for the next two years. A short documentaries from the rural, the most rural corners of India, impoverished, uh, to change the lives of these people with film, with with uh, with message, with communication. It was half an hour, half hour episode, very much like Netflix, what it is today. But at, back in those days, it was television uh, had a ninety nine percent penetration in India. What, so what year are we talking Netflix, about? I'm sorry. What year was this? Do, uh, 1986, 87, 88. Okay, around then, okay. Yeah, so TV was still pretty primitive in those days, about three or four channels. Yeah, yeah, three or four, three or four channels. And Dur Darshan, which was the Indian government-owned television channel, had a 99% penetration, you know, and that's the only channel that the, everybody watched. So our communication on, and our, our subjects of documentaries were education, water, uh, immunization, uh, health-related, you know, safety, conservation, uh, deforestation. These are the kind of things that we talked about in in a story format. So I created stories. I wrote the script and I shot and I and I uh, published it. Was a, and the name of the series was Umid, which means hope. And most of these, and the, the most important thing that I want to mention that these problems that happened in the rural in India were solved by themselves without the help of government, of any NGO, nothing, they were able to solve their own problem in their own domesticated way. And that was the subject of our, of our film. Anyway, so Rajiv Gandhi was assassinated. And then I came back to America. Now I had to choose between my right side and my left side. Do I go back to engineering or do I go, go to film and theater? Uh, and uh, my artistic in six one, and I said, how about combining the both sides? Uh, so I started my own company, which I, I said, I can always go back to engineering anytime I want. Uh, so, but I never had to. So I still run that company today that I started uh, when Rajiv Gandhi was assassinated. I, was, I, came, I came back. And that whole company's philosophy was to combine cinema with technology to create learning experiences. I, I didn't call it deep learning back then, but my my tagline of my company was linking technology to human needs. So I just came up with that uh, somehow. Uh, I like human that, needs, yeah. Human needs were the, were the driver, uh, and I, I tried to link technology to that, uh, the human need. So 35 years later, today, uh, I'm doing pretty much the same thing, but over the last 30 years, I have learned a lot more than I taught uh, of to how to communicate, how to uh, create an engaging uh, learning experience. And more so than, uh, as you can see in the last 20, 30 years, technology has changed from the book-based, print-based system to PowerPoint slides to all of that. So that's where, that's, that's my story, John. Well, it's, a, it's an incredible story and I you know, so greatly admire someone to sort of just put down a, a career of building nuclear power stations and then, and then roll to do theatre and film. It's a, it feels like such a, a fascinating, well, such a courageous move, I guess. And I, I like your point. You made a very interesting point, actually, in the middle of that, which is sort of 
sort of just skipped by it but you're sort of saying about how you were just there to to experience and to learn did you say that you came top of your class in the film school in the film because school. i was the oldest kid in the class well yeah being the oldest kid but also you said you were just there for the experience and it's so interesting about how in many yeah, ways yeah. that yeah. kind of the pursuit of grades might actually get in the way of learning which i, I always find a fascinating topic exactly um, and the know. grades didn't matter to me Exactly. When I, uh, at that time, I, I was totally immersed in the learning process of cinema. Cinema has its own language. I was learning a new language. How does lighting work? How does sound work? How does framing work? How does zoom work? How the focal length works? All of that. I mean, how, what does it mean to us? To, to, how, does it, how does it create an image of, of emotion? How does it evoke your emotion? That's what I learned in film school. Yeah, it's um, it, it, it's fascinating stuff. But as I say, I really admire the fact that you kind of just took that leap at that point and just went, ah, I'm just going to drop this and do this other completely different thing. And, and I think a lot of us probably have, you know, those kind of the pull of the, the two different sides of the brain, as you call it, or, you know, very few of us, I think, have just one person that we can be professionally. We could right. We could have ended up being many different professional people. Exactly. You exactly. kind of just end up where you end up a lot of the time. Uh, so it's great that you actually took control of that. Exactly, uh, John. You said it right. Taking control of one's own destiny is very difficult because we we become what opportunities. Yeah. Where where opportunities lead us. To. That's it. I'm sure you became an airline employee not by choice. When you started it, it was an opportunity that came in. I'm not. Yeah. I'm, uh, in in ninety nine percent of the cases, that's what it is. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Know. It was. It was um, a very opportune series of events that just kind of, yeah, oh, that's yeah, an interesting yeah. opportunity. Let's do that. It was certainly never exactly. in my um, uh, never in my plan, which I in didn't my have. Case, never had a plan. In my, case, in my case, you rightly pointed out that I decided that I was going to go to India to shoot, get the documentary experience of experience of documentary filmmaking, which is completely different than scripted, storyboarded, commercial films mm. uh, and uh, that documentary filmmaking was a it was a most romantic most beautiful experience in my life uh, really I mean that uh, so so those experiences in life uh, it taught me a lot about teaching about about uh, holding the interest of the learner holding the interest of the engaging the listener uh, that storytelling uh, is 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 a key to learning in my opinion. Well, that, that's why I wanted to just spend a few moments actually talking through your personal journey, which we don't normally do on this podcast, to be honest. It's, um, we get, we're pretty light on the human interest side of things, and it tends to be just be what's a useful thing that an L&D professional can take away. And that's usually what I try and get straight to, cut straight to the chase and get straight to that. I thought it was interesting to talk about your journey precisely for what you've just said, because it has given you that different insight into, as you say, in keeping people engaged the the learner's own journey and i think that's it's just such a different way of looking at it especially when we're talking about deep learning so let's go on to just define what do you actually mean by deep learning okay uh basically uh in a, on a surface level deep learning means that that stays with you rather than surface learning which really you memorize and you forget like bicycling, like swimming, like driving, like experiences that involve you personally, 
that you learned and subconsciously it's never erased from your memory from your mind i call that deep learning but deep learning was also a word that was not invented by me i accidentally created something and i saw when i googled deep learning i saw oh my god there's a lot of people who have used it in the past and i didn't but i believe it i mean i want to be i i, I really really am very honestly saying that i started by saying deeper learning but then i thought deeper than what so i i went to deep learning then i googled it and i found that the word deep learning was invented in 1943 by two american scientists who were trying to create computer models that simulated the brain how brain handles information and how brains activities can it be simulated can it be uh, duplicated by electronic circuitry that's 1943 people were actually inventing that in in technological way and that's what they call deep learning but then the deep learning got erased and the machines got different but then as two things changed the course of of deep learning of of this whole thing one is actually the data think about all the data and the, uh, that today is creating as we are speaking the servers who are communicating uh, you and me connecting you and me are collecting a huge amount of billions of uh, bytes of data that's being generated by television by networks by so uh, the deep learning uh, for example the human mind works on data it's stored somewhere we don't know if we are, there's not a hard drive but the data is there in our mind billions of pieces of information trillions and zillions of pieces of information we don't even know so today the deep learning has resurfaced as a method of learning method of teaching only because and in also in america and artificial intelligence only because a huge amount of data which is what you need to create a deep learning experience is is available very easily uh, to the world number one is the data number two is actually high speed processing hardware and software his data alone doesn't do anything but you have to process it you have to keep on searching so unbelievably high speed processors and electronic circuitry has made it possible to harness the power of the information the data to channel into a decision making process and the third thing that has influenced the deep learning today is uh, is actually the modeling and you can actually uh, create a model in a, in an algorithm and and create the model that leads to a decision the model uh, you know how do you differentiate between a dog and a cat from a computer point of view because there has to be a model that characterizes the dog and it characterizes the cat so all i'm i'm saying all these things only because that one level deep learning is a machine learning language as opposed to a deep learning that we experience in our in our brain so there are two different deep learning i just want to make sure that uh, we are not confusing the two the, the the your question about deep learning what do you mean by deep learning i wanted to explain to you the machine learning part of deep learning and the brain how it handles information it's all about neurons uh, as soon as we get some information from our five senses 
neurons get sparking and it's, it creates an image. And that image, it goes to the brain uh, in, the, in the cortex and we spit it out. And, and in our brain, the two sides of the, of the brain distinctly operate two different ways. One side, the left side, deals with logic, math, formula, law, all the dry stuff. And the other side of the brain is music, literature, theater, and all the artsy stuff. So my philosophy of deep learning at Teledec, as what I do, is try to combine the both sides. I'm teaching engineering, I'm teaching math, I'm teaching uh, logic, circuitry, electronic, but at the same time, I'm engaging you through music, through uh, experience, through storytelling. And so I'm combining the two sides, creating an experience that is, I call a deep learning. I'm sorry, it was a long answer to a short question. <laughs> no, that, that, well, it's, it's interesting to hear about the history of deep learning comes from a more technological background. I didn't realize that. So that's very interesting. And the kind of challenges that AI are now facing are exactly some of the, I don't know, I don't know how applicable they are actually to what we do. I don't know. I, you gave an example there about how do you tell the difference between a dog and a cat? And I was, I, it's one of those things I, I always kind of think when I walk my dog and somebody else is walking around with their little kid and they, they go, oh, look, there's a dog. And um, kids can recognize a dog and they can recognize a dog, whether it's a Chihuahua or a Great Dane or whether it's a, you know, a German Shepherd or a, you know, a Poodle. They know, ah, oh, dog. They've categorized that as a dog, despite the fact that the, the similarity between those breeds is almost zero. But for some reason, their brain has categorized it successfully. And they don't exactly. confuse. Exactly. They, they never confuse a cat and a dog. Yeah. They never confuse a dog and a pig, etc. And dog, the variety of, of, I mean, cats all look much more similar, but dogs look very, very different from each other, the different breeds. Yet they categorize them apparently effortlessly. But I don't, I don't know how relevant that is to the world of learning and development, but it's just always fascinated me that our brains are able to do that. And a little kid that can barely speak has already overcome that categorization, has already achieved that. And we can't get a machine to do it in the same exactly. way. Exactly, exactly, you got it. And the, and, the, and the point is that the how kids do it is because our deep, deep learning principles of deep learning the, the neurons that fired in our brain keep an image of one breed of dog between another breed of dog. When I see a new dog, it compares that dog to the image that we already have embedded in our memory. That's, that's deep learning. But does it though? Because, that, I mean, you've just described what could arguably be a, a, a computer process. Yes, yes, exactly. That's Whereas what I, I wonder if the brain has something else because it's doing that more successfully than the computer is. <laughs> a computer will never be, I, not in my lifetime, that they can do what brain can do. Brain is the most advanced. But I think it's doing something else. I think the brain's doing something else. I don't I have no idea what. I, I, I don't think it's, it's just comparing images and looking for commonalities and therefore saying that these commonalities define a dog. I think it must be doing something else, but I just don't know what it is. It, it may be doing something else, but the, but the electronics engineers who created the deep learning, that's the process that they wanted to emulate. 
in an electronic circuitry. Yeah, exactly. And I suppose if we're, if we're sort of applying this, well, let, let's move on, actually, because we'll apply this to L&D in a minute. So we talked about um, deep learning as essentially the kind of the learning that actually really enters you and stays with you rather than the sort of superficial learning and the riding the bike example was the one one of the examples your audience is mostly corporate learning people am i right yeah as far as i know they don't tell me they just they just download the thing no one actually tells me (laughs) yeah because there is a big difference between corporate learning and academic learning yeah but it's more corporate yeah uh, right and mostly corporate and that's what i have done i haven't I've never, I, I used to teach at New York, uh, film actually, and, and engineering, uh, but uh, that was very short time. But most of my last 30 years has been in corporate learning. And I, I, I must say that I'm, I'm really, really sad that corporations, they look at the profit level, justifiably so, but they are still in the World War One. 35, 40, 100 years back in, the, in, in accepting the changes, the pedagogical changes that has happened in the world of learning in the corporation. And they don't, I don't think they even care because most of my clients, in fact, all my clients are corporations, large corporations. But to them, the dollars they spend on, the, on, on, on their learning programs, they, th- they think of it as an expense, not an investment. And that basic fundamental philosophy of looking at the cost of teaching in a corporation, it, it boggles my mind because how little they know how important that is to the performance of the company. Actually, in a, in a, in a company, there are two sides of, of a company's learning, usually. One side is a leadership training, soft skills training, management skills training, all of that. And the other side is the engineering training, the technical training, the safety training, and the hardware training, all of that. So I have been mostly in the hardware training, the the hard skills training, the engineering and technology training. Still, you would be amazed, John, how many hundreds of corporations in America still have nothing but bullets in a PowerPoint, most boring classroom, the students really? are supposed to still these days still today hundreds and hundreds of boring bullet powerpoints because they don't want to spend the money in 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 advancing that to the next level of video or 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 or, or any kind of an engaging learning format and that has been my constant challenge with most of the corporations that i work with uh, and they, they yeah. there's no budget for it I today think some we are of doing I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, no, I was, I was just going to say. I think some of this comes from the fact that, uh, as you say, sort of technical skills are much more easy to sort of define. And you know, as you mentioned earlier, I used to work for an airline. So, for example, if you're training a pilot, you've got to train. I mean, I mean, there's no two ways about it. You've got to train an engineer. You've got to train cabin crew, and there's no two ways about it. They cannot do their job otherwise. But the kind of behavioural skills, as I like to call them what you call the sort of soft skills, you don't necessarily need to train people on those. You can sort of find your own way. And if your mind about, if, if you're the way you kind of visualize L&D is an extension of the kind of school university dynamic, therefore it's, it's sort of more understandable why you might think, well, actually, I don't need that. 
was what and i think lnd when it comes from that background i think is is when it doesn't quite work as well but when lnd comes from performance which is what you mentioned how it impacts performance and it's like how can we help your your performance in the workplace how can we help your managers perform better how can we help your leaders perform better how can we help your you know individual contributors perform better that's when i think lnd starts to really click and often your solutions won't then be classroom based training it may be partly that but they won't be that because you won't start there. You won't start with, I've got some theory, how can I get it into your brain? You'll start with, I need to help you with your performance. And then there's loads of different moving parts you can act upon. And you won't be doing that in a training room most of the time. Some of the time, but not most of the time. So I think if you kind of start in the wrong place, that's kind of where you end up in the wrong place. You know, when I design my learning experience as an L&D professional, I... Always. In fact, when I'm making commercial films, also I do that. I start with the ending. My first right. thing that I do is I, how do I, what's my takeaway? What am I going to end this film with? Whether it's a classroom film or a video or a classroom teaching or a, a commercial film, uh, my story. So from there, these five takeaways that I want from my class, I developed what do I do to, for each one of those five takeaways to embellish that, to augment that, to tell stories or to engage them into games or whatever. And that's how, that's, that's the experience that I, my students leave, leave from the class, classroom when I, uh, you mentioned airline. As you know, uh, airline, and I, I, I played a part in that as well, uh, uses simulator, simulators to teach the, the simulator is actually. Yeah, not PowerPoint. <laughs> They are not PowerPoint. They are sitting no. in a chair, exactly simulating a snowstorm or a hailstorm or a wind. At a, your one engine failed, both engine failed. Uh, so all of those experiences—that's deep learning. Today, John, you'll be happy to hear. Many of my clients are now. I'm doing a lot of virtual reality, where you put the goggles on and you are in immersed in a simulator. You are actually doing the work. You're picking up, picking up a spanner. You're tightening up a bolt, you're putting the flanges together, you're putting a gasket now with the hand in the virtual world. Now that is deep learning when you're immersed in there. But when you don't have the virtual reality, what really is very powerful, John and I have found is storytelling. And storytelling is really not usually very uh, well used uh, or leveraged in corporate learning, I don't think. What I mean by storytelling, there is a saying in Native Indians that one who tells the story owns the world. One who That's tells nice. the story owns the world. This is a Native Indian, uh, you know, uh, and the way our brains work, if you're telling me an engaging story, my mind will automatically follow the character. In, in fact, it has been in England, it has been proven that kids who watch Harry Potter are more sympathetic to the immigrants coming to England than people who didn't kids who didn't see it am i making sense yeah i understand what you mean I, i'm just trying to think why harry potter would in particular would have that uh, impact because of the of the of the large number of characters from alien from other places you're open to other uh, I, a general I, openness not, to other 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 so that openness that feeling so, you know, when a kid or, or even an adult watches the movie or hears the story, you automatically empathize with the character. 
If the character is sad, you become sad. If the character is happy, you become happy. That relationship of storytelling is can be utilized very heavily in a corporate learning. I, I really have always scripted my my corporate learning experiences very much like a film, always like a film. That's what I meant when I married right side and the left side in my career at, at, at my company. Well, I was going to move on to sort of say, like, let, let's get a bit more specific and talk about how we can actually use deep learning in our roles. So we talked about storytelling a bit there, but maybe we need to drill down a bit more specifically to, set, to, to understand what that would actually look like. And then we can maybe talk through another couple of examples of ways that you think we can bring deep learning into our L&D practice. So let's just focus a bit more on storytelling. So you, you've told us about the, sort of the principle of storytelling and why it works, but can you give us an example? When I am teaching safety in a very high voltage, normally when, the, when a utility produces electricity in a nuclear or a fossil power plant, the, the energy comes out typically at about 22.5 kilovolts. That's how, then it's brought down by transformer to a subsequent uh, voltages. Then we get it in England, you get it at 220 volt. In America, we get it 110 volt in the wall. So this whole step, stepping down of the voltage and handling the voltage at a very, very high level is very, very, very dangerous. Every year we, we lose hundreds of people in high voltage accidents. So this topic is how do you create a mindset that prevents you to do something wrong while you're handling this high voltage. So story becomes very critical in getting that mindset, that behavior. Stories of actual incidences, stories of actual events, stories of actually collected from all over the world. Uh, this happened here. So I start, I start my class with, with an accident scene and a video or a fire or something to grab their attention to get, get to that. And then I deep analyze what caused it and finally break it down step by step into the single little step that he took to cross that catastrophe. Am I making sense? Yeah, absolutely. That's quite a great, that's a really good example. I like it. Because you've made something that's actually quite dull. Health and safety, exactly. you think, oh God. Exactly, exactly. You know, I'll just, Rather I'll just than check saying, my okay, email while, while Kushal talks, now, but no. Yeah. Now you, you hold it with these gloves and this thing, and then you slowly bring it together. That's not storytelling. You break it, you, you reverse engineer to the point that this guy didn't do this right. And that caused that explosion that you started the film with. The, the whole idea of, in, in, there is such a language in, in filmmaking called, you have to draw a curve if, it, if, if it's a 90 minute film, Toward the time span of a straight line of 90 minutes, the, the interest level, it peaks and lowers, it goes up and down. There's a plot, there's a subplot. There's, this is classical Hollywood storytelling. But if you superimpose that to this fire accident scene, you know, I immediately grab their attention. Think about a cycle or think about, uh, you know, a Hitchcock movie. At the very beginning of the birds, 
uh, if something will happen that will captivate you, who did it? What did it happen? What happened? I'm t using the same principles of storytelling in telling the safe. I'm yeah. teaching the safety course and electric course. Yeah, I find that. that yeah, yeah, I find that very, very kind of clever how they do that. And I notice myself getting caught up in it sometimes. And I'm, I'm kind of reading a story or something, and I'm thinking, God, I really want to know who did it or what happened or why this. And sometimes I reflect upon that, and I kind of think. Well, this actually didn't happen it's entirely fictional so why does it matter but it does it really does and it does because somebody's told me a story it startles you it, it, yeah it's I, I know amazing. i'm telling myself this did this didn't happen it's just it's just a, it's, a, it's a fictional story that somebody wrote yet it's caught me and i've got to get to the end i've got to know what happened it's uh it's it, it's such a clever way of using the brain isn't it exactly exactly and that's what i mean by storytelling you have to learn as an L&D professional, if you want to engage, if you just want to be a teacher, put on your material on the screen and show a video. But if you really want to engage and leave your students wanting to learn more, you have to design your course in such a way that the student will want to learn. They will want to find out. To me, that's, the, that's your success story when you have let your students with hunger to learn no more that to me is the success because nobody learns anything unless he wants to nobody learns anything you can switch no, it off yeah and, and i'm just reflecting as well because um i've spent most of this week delivering leadership training and we had a session on around um, becoming inclusive leaders and the i didn't deliver this session somebody else did then she started by sharing some stories about people in our organization that were examples of when people had felt excluded and some of them were, were kind of on things like sexism and racism and you kind of think well surely we're not sexist or racist anymore in our organization surely not surely we're way past that and oh my god these stories you think seriously you know somebody said that somebody did that and immediately you kind of pay attention because you think this is seriously happening and it's just eye-opening so even if the story itself is over so quick, it just it just changed our attitude because suddenly we were taking it seriously because we had a real life story. I follow some guidelines about how do I want to tell the story? How do I usually uh, it, it, it I'm just giving it it's a cheat sheet that I'm telling your audience that you can be very successful by always. I always started from the end, like I said, at the very end. And then I build it up to the to the top, and then I I create a question, and I always start my question, start my class or course with a question, and I let the people, the students, think about how they would answer, and that leads me to the meat of the course, and how this could be a choice or that could be a choice. Let's look at this alternate versus that alternate, and then automatically deduce where I want them to come to at the conclusion of the film of, of the course comes to that what I want to lead them with. In, in other words, I let them do the thinking and provoke them with questions. Let them do the analysis. Now I've engaged them. This is the whole part, whole point of this is how do you engage them? They have to do the thinking and the learning designer should really find a way to engage them. That's what film is all about. All the Hollywood films that you like are like that. How did you, how did you engage?
I remember reading somewhere about that, about they have a sort of a, a beat and there's certain beats and on, you know, I can't remember exactly what it was, but on the, you know, the 10th minute or whatever, so, you know, a helicopter has to explode or something like that. There's these sorts of various beats along the, the way to get the rhythm of the film right. But I was just thinking then when you were saying about the questions, and I guess this is this is another tip. So if we're saying if we're saying storytelling, use of stories is one tip to really get into deep learning. I guess provocative questions are another. And I remember I was doing a a course on or a session, I should say, on uh, giving feedback. And I asked the question at the beginning, why is feedback important? And it was a stupid question to ask. It was a terrible question to ask. And I realized as soon as I asked it, I'd asked the wrong question. Because all I got was people trotting out the corporate line. Oh, this is why. Oh, yeah. And most people can't stand feedback unless it's positive. Most of us hate it. But, you know, we might recognize it's useful. But it doesn't mean we like it. And a lot of feedback's ill-informed. A lot of feedback's poorly given. A lot of people don't understand the context. There's a million reasons why feedback doesn't work or doesn't land well or whatever or isn't welcome and might even damage relationships. And I just asked this stupid wrong question and I just got back these, you know, the corporate line. And it just showed you the skill of really asking the right question. And immediately I asked it, I thought, oh, God, I should have thought more about this. Because I could have had a much more interesting question, a much more interesting discussion than a few people just trotting out. This is what he needs to hear. So the skill of asking that question is so important. I, I want to give you another uh, example, very short example that I did last night. This, uh, not last night, last week, this course was about change management. You know, oh, change I love change management. It's one of my favorite courses. Yeah, I love talking about that. And and this this is the healthcare client, and they're one of America's largest diagnostics labs. There's a change coming. The law, but the the company cannot announce it. They they're it's political change. It's a diplomatically have to be handled. But they want their managers and the supervisors and the, and the stakeholders be ready to handle the change when the change comes. And, and they asked me to devise, ask our uh, expert, our consultant, uh, to devise uh, a change management course. So what we did was actually create a virtual reality palace, 1920s palace. And this is a very antique palace that we had a model. And in this palace, there's 50 students who came to the main, main room. They were given that there's a murder that has happened in this palace. It's a murder mystery tour. And, and, and they, we divide this 50 people into groups of five groups of 10 people each. And they go to their rooms. And somebody goes to the dining room, somebody goes to the bedroom, somebody to the balcony, somebody to the living room, etc. And there are clues hidden all around these rooms they have to discover. And then they, at the end of the course, they come back and tell us who, who they think the murderer murder is and, and why. It's not, there's no right or wrong answer. It's the clue and the deduction and analysis and the logic that prompts them to See, here, the change management, the change is the murder. How do you detect change? What leads you to actually, because the ch we don't know what the change is coming. That was the challenge. Without knowing what the change is, how do you know its effect? Anyway, what I'm trying to say is that this, this murder mystery tour of finding out who the murderer was, was one way of immersing the, the students in that environment. 
in a virtual world in this 1920s palace. It's a great example. I love it. I don't, I don't, if I'm honest, I don't get the link to change management, but I do love the idea. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the, uh, you're right. It's very difficult to visualize that connected to change management. But here, the, the change was the murderer. How do you get the clues? The clues lead you to what change could, could be in that room or that the killer was. It's a very, very indirect and very oblique way of leading that. But the whole metaphor was that of intrigue and interest. I mean, the point is you're engaging so much of yes. not just the brain, but the body, I guess. It's quite holistic. You're engaging the, the, the full human. Let's put it that way. You're engaging the full person. And that creates these deep learning experiences. Like you started saying it's like riding a bike. The, the idea that you right. never forget riding a bike or driving a car because your whole body's engaged, your emotions are engaged, your physical body's engaged, your brain is engaged, at least at the beginning, until you until it becomes hardwired. So yeah, it's it's uh, it, it's an intriguing idea of creating this virtual reality that sort of comes at you from an old angle. Exactly, exactly. Uh, what I want to leave your your audience with is this: that if you can create a metaphor, if you can create a story, if you can create some way to engage the students in an immersive way, the brain, our brain, has what's called a mirror neuron system. A mirror neuron system is our brain, what we observe, what we see, what we read, what we hear, what we smell. Our brain automatically, through this mirror neuron system, tries to emulate that in our brain. The sense of feel, all the five senses, we, we, we reckon, the brain recognizes it. So the mirror comes from, like I said, if you see somebody sad, you become sad. It's a mirror neuron system. If you see somebody happy, you become happy. So in your course design, can you create some characters or incidences or, or events that changes the behavior of the learner in a way that you are controlling that behavior in a way that you want the output to be? Am I making sense? You are. It's quite a challenge. You're posing quite a challenge to to us on that one, yeah. But it's interesting. I mean, as you say, if you start with the start with the end, start with what is the impact I want to have, right. which sounds obvious, and everybody in L and D says they do that. Although I don't believe the ball. I believe quite a lot of people start with the content that they have. But let's but let's say that everybody starts with the end that you want to achieve, and then you step back and you say, well, how can I make the most possible engaging, emotional, captivating experiences, which will get there? And some yeah. things we can do are you know, as you said, the, the kind of clever questions, the, the storytelling, the, the, the immersive environments, all of these things and which activity. can help us create those activities. Yeah, that can help Engagement. us, you know, create those engaging experiences. Well, listen, Kushal, thank you very much for your uh, time. It's been an absolute pleasure to get to know you and uh, pick it's your brains over these subjects. I'm sure we could actually talk for many hours on this, but uh, it, it's been it's been great. So thank you very much. It's, it's my pleasure, uh, John. Uh, enjoy Madrid, uh, and uh, let me let me hope the small the snow melts soon, and spring is around the corner, and I can get immersed into a beautiful spring weather. In oh, you Spain. will! But by the time this goes out, by the time I've edited it and everything, it will be probably midsummer or something. But um, but yeah, so the snow will have melted by the time you hear this again. 
Thank you very, very much. And hello to all your listeners. And I look forward to chatting with you again someday. Yeah, I hope so, Kishal. Thank you. Bye. Bye.